fight. It was nighttime, yeah, or evening, evening-ish, and I pulled up, and everything was set up, and I got out, shook his hand, walked into the walked into the apartment. Somehow, along another, we got to like, what do you do, or you know, what are you doing, where are you coming from, or something along those lines, and uh, from there. I guess some, somehow we ended up that I played football at Carolina. I can't really remember right. how we got to it, but he brought up the fight and then he brought up the incident at the stadium and he like connected those two to sort of make like a general idea of how the team was. And I guess at the time, again, this is before social media, I didn't really know how it was being perceived right. in the world. Right. Um, and so that was sort of my first really introduction to like how, how this whole thing was being perceived by the, you know, the outside world. That's Preston talking to me about his experience one month after the fight. His football career had just finished abruptly. We will discuss that and the incident at the stadium and why Preston's career ended so suddenly as we move forward in this episode. But we're going to start here with how the fight affected the players who were involved and even those who were not involved and how it continues to affect some of them to this day. Preston was looking for an apartment that day. He needed a place to live during the final semester of his career because the end of his football scholarship meant the end of his on-campus housing. This was the first apartment Preston went to see, and it didn't go well. His potential landlord made it clear quickly that he had no intention of providing housing to someone who was connected to the fight. Preston, who was doing student teaching at a local high school at the time in order to finish his education degree, was stunned. I didn't have the right tools to respond. I didn't know what to say or what to do. Um... It was just kind of like, he made it very clear that that was the end of the conversation. No. And it was because of these reasons. And that was it. And it, but it, it, it was like a, it felt like a, it was a, it was a personal attack though. We are Langston Moore, Preston Thorne, and Josh Kimball. Langston and Preston both played on the defensive line for South Carolina. And Preston was a senior captain on that 2014. Langston was in his second year with the NFL Cincinnati Bengals by then. And together they now own athletes and artists. Josh has covered the program at South Carolina for a decade and now works for The Athletic and will narrate most of this podcast. If you missed episodes one through five, be sure to go back and listen now. This is episode six of The Fight. Preston was one of South Carolina's game captains that day. He did not participate in any of the fighting, but he and everyone in New Jersey that day was going to be lumped into the thick of it. In this episode, we're going to discuss what that affiliation meant for some of the players, the price that both teams played for their part, and what happened at Williams-Brice after the Gamecocks were informed of that price. As wild as the fight was, most of the players didn't immediately understand how many people had seen it or what they thought when they did. This is Woody Telford. Yeah, we was in shock, like, what the hell just happened? I even t- I even was shocked, like, did I really go out and do that in front of national TV? But it is what it is, you know. Yeah. My brothers went to war. I was, I was there with them. Here's Taki Muhammad. Mother called me, and she was like, um, so, how was the game? And I was like, I didn't think she watched it. Yeah. I didn't think it was uh, nationally televised. It was like regional. Right. So I asked, she was like, how was the game? I was like, oh, good. She was like, so you want to be a TV star? I was like, what you mean? She was like, I saw the fight. And I was like, you saw the fight? And then that's when I knew it was national news after that. As we explained in episode five, nobody was more closely associated with the fight than Clemson running back Yusef Kelly. The picture of him appearing to kick a helmetless South Carolina player while that player was laying on the ground became the single most famous image from the fight. 
it went viral long before anyone knew what going viral meant, being splashed on the newspapers across the country the next day. You know, at first, I didn't, I didn't really pay no attention. I actually thought it was, it was cool that yeah. they had that picture on the front page of the paper. But yeah. then, you know, it was in Boston Globe, it was the Denver Post, it was the Chicago Times, it was the New York Times, the New York Post, the L.A. Times, like all the major papers from across, the, you know, because back then you had to look at newspapers. That's all okay. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. we might be dating ourselves a little bit, but, you know, you had to look at the paper for stuff like that. And so at the time, it was a big deal that that was all across the country. It wasn't cool for long. Um, I didn't get um, a couple of jobs because of that stuff. Um, I can't tell you the number of uh, racist stuff that I got uh, from that man. People telling me to go the fuck back to Africa, back to Africa, back to Africa. Calling me the N-word and stuff like that because back then our emails were public. So like you could just go to the website, look up a student and, and get the email. And man, I, I think I got at least 50 plus emails telling me to go back to Africa and, and what I can do and all kinds of stuff. And I was just like... Man, like, is, is it that serious? Man. You know, like, wow. And, like, people were literally blaming me for what happened. And I'm like, dude, I wasn't even on the field yeah. when they started. Dondrell Pinkins wasn't either. Pinkins was South Carolina's injured starting quarterback. He didn't even play in that game. But he still had to deal with the consequences. Pinkins is now the head football coach and athletics director at Pelham High School in his home state of Georgia. He's also a dad. But just here recently, man, I think it's probably been two, three months ago, my oldest daughter came home from school and said, Daddy, what happened here? That's a question that many players have had to answer about the fight in the 15 years that have passed. But few had to face the consequences that Pinkins has had to. That's a story we'll get to soon, but first let's talk about how each university handled the fallout of the fight and what happened next. The day after the fight, the school's athletic administrators huddled to consider disciplinary action and both schools decided that they would remove their football teams from bowl consideration because of the fight. The schools announced the decision that Monday. Clemson's athletic director, Terry Don Phillips, released a statement that said in part, this is more than just a football issue. The circumstances surrounding Saturday's game have impacted the perception of the character and integrity of the University of Clemson. We expect all of our teams and student athletes to act with class and dignity. For the most part, we're very proud of our student athletes and teams. We have an outstanding coaches, we have outstanding student-athletes, and we understand that fighting in athletics is not acceptable. I know that this decision is not fair to the clear majority of our players or coaches, but given the circumstances, I believe strongly that this is the right decision for our university, for our student-athletes, supporters, and all people that love Clemson. Without a question, they know what our values are. Tommy Bowden, Clemson's coach at the time told USA Today in 2014 that the punishment probably cost each player $2,000 in bowl money and gifts and said, quote, unquote, the punishment helped us educate our players. It didn't feel like an education to a lot of players, said Clemson cornerback Ty Hill. Coach Bowden was pissed. I remember he was pissed, you know, yeah. but see, everybody was pissed, man, you know, because, well, everybody was looking for it, looking for it. You know, college, boy, you be looking for it for them, them bowl checks. For so, sure. Talk about. Was, I mean, yep. talk about that. How important? I mean, the bowl. Oh man. man, that was a rough Christmas, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was a rough Christmas, dog. You know, you had a longer break. You know, 
You yeah. ain't had, no, had no bowl gift, buddy. It's customary for college players to receive gifts from the bowl games in which they participate, whether it be a watch or a video game system or something related to the geography of where the teams play. Often that gift includes a shopping spree at a local store, which many players use to buy Christmas presents for their families. There's also the travel money available for bowl games. For instance, if a player from Columbia, South Carolina is playing in the Outback Bowl in Tampa, Florida, he will be paid mileage money to the bowl site if he meets his teammates there for practice. If teammates carpool and all get reimbursed for mileage, that can turn into a nice Christmas bonus too. There's also the idea of one last hurrah with that team, which is especially true for a team's seniors, most of whom will not play another game of football. You don't know, you know what I'm saying, you've been working your ass off all year long during the summer, whatever, so it's like a, a reward for you to go have fun. You know what I'm saying, win, lose, or draw the game, but you still, you know, it's like rewarding. Okay, we're going to get some bold gifts, this and that, the third. You know what I'm saying, we're going to get the parlay, you know what I'm saying, for a weekend. You know what I'm saying, that's that's men going to have fun. And, you know, some people, that that's our last, last fellowship of a game. That's Daryl Shropshire, the South Carolina defensive lineman you've heard from before. He was a senior in 2004. Shropshire would go on to play two seasons in the NFL, but for most of the Gamecock seniors and Tiger seniors, the fight was the last game they would ever play in. South Carolina's players remember that message being relayed in a Monday meeting by Athletics Director Mike McGee. Holtz's retirement had been announced Sunday, and many players did not see him again after he left the visitors' locker room in Clemson after the fight, they said. What McGee said stunned the players. The way he said it angered many of them. He called us a bunch of thugs in that meeting room. Thugs and thugs and thugs. But we are against those thugs. And he was like, uh, yeah, yeah, like a bunch of thugs. That's why you're not going to a bowl game. So I'm quoted in the state paper back in 04 saying that he referred to the incident as hooliganism. I took exception to that as a 22-year-old senior, and I take exception to that now as a 38-year-old man. For a lot of folks, especially black men, there's a really short jump between the coded language of thugs and hooligans to much harsher, more inflammatory language. As we all know, sometimes it's not the words that people say, but it's the way that people say them. And I remember sitting in the room that night, feeling the way those words were being used against us. The fact is, There weren't hooligans or thugs sitting in that meeting room. They were young men, student athletes, if you will, who only a week earlier were held up to the world as virtues and examples of the character that the university wanted to display. Mel Parker, who played for McGee at Duke and went on to work for him at South Carolina, says the irony of the entire situation is that McGee, in his heyday, probably would have been right in the middle of the fray with the Gamecocks players. Well, and to be perfectly honest, if I had to guess... I would I would say to him the only reason the only thing he 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 might have he might have had or that he had a problem with was that it was on TV it was a rival how it made the university look and all of that stuff or how it made the athletic department look and all of that stuff but I guarantee you if he had been down there on the field. Mm-hmm. He would have probably been doing some of this. <laughs> He—he's a monster man. He used to—he used to get down in drills with us with no pads on. You know, yeah. we out there doing Oklahoma, and he's out there showing us how to 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 block this defensive lineman or for that defensive lineman. McGee died following a long illness earlier this year, and we were unable to speak to him for this podcast. 
Kerry Tharp, South Carolina's longtime sports information director, was in the meeting when McGee delivered the news. And I remember uh, being in that meeting room, I think it was a Monday afternoon, you know, just having to, to convey that, that to the players was, was very difficult because, you know, here they are, like you said, particularly the seniors, this was their last their last opportunity to play in the and, and maybe a day or two before they were under the idea that man that we're they gonna, were going to we're gonna have another one yeah exactly and so this was an opportunity for them to, to continue their career playing a postseason game and like you said you know it was a, a bowl game is important I don't care which bowl it is and, and one of the one of the uh, best things I think about college football is the bowl system yeah it was a difficult time uh, for those players. And, uh, uh, you know, like you said, the news had already kind of trickled out a little bit. So, I'll be honest with you, they were upset. They were hurt. They were angry. Yeah. They were uh, disappointed. They were, you know, it, it was, it was uh, you know, not a good, not a good time. And so, uh, they, uh, uh very, very frustrated. Yeah. Frustrated and angry is how I would describe it. The players already were upset because they had officially learned of Holtz's retirement but through media reports, former South Carolina running back Corey Boyd said. Lou told us that we would have a, a, a coaches meeting, uh, uh, I mean a, a team meeting to discuss it, and we would know beforehand. And unfortunately, that did not work out the way it was supposed to, and we got a phone call. Uh, right before Lou had made a, a announcement on TV and the, the president had made an announcement on TV, uh, we actually learned on TV before we learned <laughs> going to the to the meeting. And I yeah. think that that ruffled the feathers of a lot of the players. And, you know, we we worked our butts off that year and we we felt betrayed a little bit. And it was. It was a rough thing to hear, you know. Uh, who broke who broke that news to y'all? Uh actually Lou Holtz. Okay. You know, we we went into uh the meeting and uh before we got in, you know, players were chatting about, you know, what they thought and what they felt and about the time we got in the room. You know, emotions were high, you know, people were upset, they were crying, you know, because for the seniors that was their last game. You know, sure. and they they didn't expect that to come to an abrupt end like that. So, you know, it, it was it was really rough to hear that all your hard work and your efforts, you know, this was what it came to. Here's Pinkins again. They came in and told players that basically, you know, this year is over with. No bowl game. We didn't have a banquet. It was just like, you know, it's over with. Bye. And then the coaches. Coach Holtz decided to retire. The coaches started finding other jobs, and that year was over really with with no closure, if you, if you ask me. Uh, being a senior that year, we didn't have a banquet. We didn't have a bowl game. Uh, we was called in and told that the season was suspended. There would be no bowl game, and that's the last thing I really remember as far as the football aspect of having the team together as one. That last meeting when they called us in and said we were suspended because of the brawl, and that's it. Players from both teams remember those meetings and their feelings walking out of them afterwards. The difference between the situation at South Carolina and Clemson was this. Clemson head coach Tommy Bowden and his staff were still in place. 
Bowden delivered the news to his players and his staff that were still intact in the aftermath. At South Carolina, Holtz and his staff were gone. The Gamecock players walked out of that meeting and into what felt like a vacuum. Because that's when you all know where it gets worse. That's yeah. when everybody starts stealing everything. That's Nishan Goddard. Yeah, Skip broke the news to us like, man, shoot, you know, hate how it ended. Not a good way to send my dad out. You know, you know, you guys, I love y'all. If you need me in the future, let me know type speech. But, you know, by the way, our bowl game's been taken from us. Uh, there will be no bowl. Because, like I said, we was already bowl eligible. Yeah. Uh, I think that game made us 6-5. and five. I think we were 6-4. and four, That made us 6-5. and five. We only had 11 games that okay. year. And so, we, you know, won no bowl. And I think everybody's pissed off. So, you know, you got a lot of seniors on that group, or a lot of guys who this last go-around. And that's when, you know, like I said, things came up missed because this is it now. Now, granted, if y'all remember, they used to give us all that shit. This is true. You know what I'm saying? This is true. And I just think the height of the situation and emotion was like, you know what? These son of a gun stole this stuff. But I remember, man, we used to always get a helmet, two jerseys. We used to have to ask for a picture, but they would they would give us all that. In January, Woody Telford, Savelle Newton, and Brian Brownlee were charged with grand larceny. Dondrell Pinkins, Freddie St. Preux, and Rod Wilson were charged with petty larceny. Those are the cut and dry facts of the case. What happened is a more complicated story. There's no question that after the whirlwind of the weekend, the fight, Holtz's official retirement, the decision to forfeit a bowl, several players made hasty and bad decisions. Here's Troy Williamson, the speedy wide receiver who sat out the fight while talking to an assistant coach about his NFL future. Well, you found out he was gone and the, dis- and the whole disappointment with the, the no bowl. Yeah. I think that's what, that's what did it. That's what put us to a point to where we were like, bump it. Whatever happened, happened. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's take our pictures. Let's take whatever else they was taking. I mean, I, I don't see the problem with us taking our own pictures. I didn't see a problem with that. For sure. You can't, you can't take, uh, Computers and projectors, (laughs) you just can't do that. Chris Matlock, the team's equipment manager, and one of the few team employees still around after Holtz's retirement, was put in charge of recovering the items that went missing. And that's when all kind of hell broke loose at the stadium. Yeah. When those guys were were taking pictures off the wall themselves and this Mm -hmm. and all this and, and this and that. And then all of a sudden, we get the call. Well, I got a call to say, hey, Get, get all the stuff back. So I'm calling all the players who, who man, how did it is? I said, man, they said, is this serious? I said, yeah, because, you know, the police are involved with this one now. Mm-hmm. They said, how serious is this? Yeah. I said, this thing, this thing is serious, more serious than dick cancer. Taki Muhammad remembers that conversation. Of course, a conversation like that would be hard to forget. Let's clear this up. Normally, we get to get our pictures at the end of the season. They, mm-hmm. They'll give you your pictures off the wall and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But since everything was in disarray, Lou was retiring. He really wasn't coaching with us, nothing like that. People just decided they was they was taking their helmets. They was taking their pictures. They was doing all of that. I'm not going to lie. I took my helmet. I gotcha. took my helmet, and I took it home. And I mm-hmm. remember I got a phone call from Matlock. Chris Matlock said, hey, Taki. Something serious is going on, and if you have anything, I was like, I got my helmet. He was like, well, I, you should bring it back. And I ain't asked no questions. I live right mm-hmm. down the street in College Street. Mm-hmm. I drove up to the stadium to hear Matt like hear my helmet. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that saved me from 
whatever legal ramifications they was trying to say on people. It didn't save Dondrell Pinkins. Pinkins took his game helmets and was unaware he'd done anything wrong. When police began investigating the incident, he was happy to cooperate. Well, this is what I was told, and I, you know, and, and I was told this by the guys who were doing the investigation on the case. I was called, and they told me that they wanted to interview seniors, and I invited them to my apartment. We came in, and when they was asking questions, they said, "Did you have anything that came from the facility that night?" And we're sitting in my living room, and I had my two helmets sitting up on my entertainment center. I had a picture upstairs in my room. Yeah. I had one that my mom had back home. Yeah. And like you say, I was given permission by Matlock, the equipment guy, to take them. You got guys walking out of the facility with coaches standing around on surveillance. So if they were stealing, why didn't anybody say, hey, put that stuff back? It don't belong to you. But right. yeah, we were given permission. And I was told that they were doing an investigation and anything that that facility, they were trying to recover it and take it back until the investigation was on. So they asked me if I could take the helmets and take the pictures back. I got in contact with my parents. I got that picture back. I returned both pictures. I returned both helmets. I went back to Atlanta to train. I got a call saying that there was a warrant out for my arrest probably a few days later. And when I asked... Why was I arrested? The guy told me, because you returned the stuff. He said, if you had never returned the stuff or never admitted that it left the facility, you wouldn't have got arrested. I said, well, I didn't steal it. I was given permission to take it. If I was stealing it, there's no way I would invite you into my apartment (laughs) with the evidence sitting right on my entertainment. When Pinkins called his mother to tell her he was being arrested, she thought he was joking. It's still a tough pill to swallow because I went out on a note where, you know, it, it, it wasn't on the sunny side. Newton also cooperated, he said. He was also arrested. We were told, like, hey, if you took anything, if you took a helmet, if you took a, um, a, a photo, image, or anything of yourself, to return it. Mm-hmm. So the good guys, the ones that decided to return our stuff, yeah. were the ones who got noted for returning things, mm-hmm. and we were the ones who got arrested. Mm-hmm. The ones who returned stuff got okay. arrested. Like I just like I said, I just had a, a photo, an image of me yeah. and Coach Holtz. Mm-hmm. And my, the rest of my career at the University of South Carolina, that, 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 that same picture that I got arrested for was in the, in the equipment room behind the behind the um, behind the, um, the the place where they keep the cabinets and yeah, stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm like, man, y'all really like arrested me for this picture? Seeing players like Pinkins and Wilson, who were among the most respected people in South Carolina's locker room, arrested intensified the feeling among some players that the school was looking for scapegoats simply to prove a point. Offensive lineman Jabari Levy said. It was like, guys, you wouldn't expect, you know, who the ones that were getting called out. Because it was like a lot of guys, like everybody was like, I don't think nobody felt that it was wrong. Well, I didn't know about the, the projectors and stuff like that. I just saw a bunch of people with their pictures and stuff like that from off the wall. Everybody felt like, I mean, see, like, nobody said anything. Like, no, you can't do that. Um, so I feel like everybody was just taking their pictures. Like, they thought it was okay. And then, uh, you know, like, I didn't know about the laptops and the projectors and stuff like that until, like, the only dudes. I'm like, what? Like, what? You know what I mean? Like, what? Yeah, you was there. You like, yeah. yeah, I didn't see nobody taking projectors yeah. and laptops and all that. I just saw people with pictures and stuff like that trying to come out. But, um... It seems to be somebody who everybody was shocked about was there. Can you remember a person we were like, yo, that's crazy. Yeah, and it was, uh... Who was, was Rod got caught up in there, right? Rod Wilson. And I was like, Rod? Like, you know Rod don't have to steal. We know Rod came from a good family. You know, we clean cut. Always doing 
like, they got Rodney and tied up in that too. Like, dang, that's crazy. And I don't even remember who else, who all else it was, but it was just like, man, it was just like the, the people who got like slandered or tarnished in that thing were like clean guys. Like, for the most part, that I know, I mean, I don't know what everybody do, but. Matt Locke described the arrested players as good kids. They had mug shots and everything. I'm yeah. like, wow. Another thing that bothered many of the players and still does today is that the case was initially closed before being reopened by incoming university president Andrew Sorensen. Here's Kerry Tharp again. I, I do remember that they, and I, and I felt terrible. I felt terrible that it happened. I mean, it wasn't right, but I right. felt terrible that it was happened because these kids, I think, were angry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I think there were circumstances that contributed to this happening. But, you know, certainly I still can't condone it. For sure. But, you know, what I recall that, that there was an investigation uh, that closed the matter, did reopen. I don't know exactly what happened legally from it with any of the players, but you know, it was it was it was bad press. The whole thing still sticks with St. Prue. The way the season ended, his arrest, what it did to his family, everything. Once we found that out, it was just a mess. Nobody cared, and, you know. It, Nobody cared because, like I said, we worked hard to get there. So, it, it, you know, you remember, it, it was it was a rough year, man. So it meant a lot to find out that, hey, we we're able to go to bowl this year. And, and it felt like no one cared. So shit, we felt like we didn't care, you know. And, and after that, it just got chaotic, obviously, in the locker room, you know. You know, unfortunately, I got caught up in a situation which, you know, still leaves a stain, not only to myself, but to my, um, to my family as well. The incident is tied to him forever, he said. What's wrong is wrong, but in, in my eyes at that time, you know, I, I didn't think I did anything wrong. But for the way things went, the way it went, it was unfortunate. It was foul. Yeah, it was definitely foul because it, it threw a whole funk on how I felt about being at that school throughout my whole time there. The only thing that kind of kept me together were my teammates. Because I, I mean, I hated it because at that point I was like, damn, they're going to slide me under the bus like that? You know, what the fuck I come here for? You know, like, I, I could have went anywhere. What the fuck I come here for? You know, and it was my teammates that were like, you know, don't trip about it, bro. You know, we got you. I left the stand. I left the, I left the stand. I never really talked about it. You know, nobody really knew that you had left the stand because it, it, it was foul. I mean, and and really, the person that really, the people that really got the, the worst end of it were my folks because, you know, until this day, you know, they talk about it. And I'm like, man, I can't really explain it to them on how it really went down because they, they really understand it. Again, one of the big ideas that came up over and over and over again in our interviews was the idea about not having a banquet. Now, who would think that a banquet, which usually has dry chicken, boring speakers, would mean so much to a group of 18 to 22-year-olds? It did. It still does. I was quoted in an article in the state paper entitled Tain and Love, saying that I feel like they abandoned ship on us. That's honestly how I feel. They talk about loyalty, but at the time when the team needed loyalty from people in positions of power, they weren't there. Now that's how I felt as a 22-year-old senior who was trying to figure life out. But now as a man approaching 40, it's not that I feel they abandoned ship on us. I know they did.
And I also understand why they did it. At the time, I felt like it was a personal attack on the character of me and my teammates. But now I know it wasn't personal at all. It was just business. And we weren't good for business at the time. My youthful idealism led me to demand a meeting with Dr. McGee. And we eventually got it. We had a 20-minute meeting with Dr. McGee where we voiced our concerns and we asked for some type of end-of-the-year recognition. We left that meeting hopeful, hopeful that maybe, just maybe, there would be something for the team, at least something for the seniors. My teammate and co-captain Jonathan Austin was quoted as saying, he wanted it to be one more time before we all went our separate ways. We never got it. This episode of The Fight was produced, created, and executed by Athletes and Artists. Major shout-out to Josh Kendler for the writing. Major shout-out to TK Fowler for sound design. And big shout-outs to Aaron Myers, our chief strategist. Looking forward to seeing you next episode.